Oh, good morning to you. I really missed our time together um, being with you and uh, glad that I'm back and glad that I'm able to spend this time with you around God's word. Well, when it comes to the topic of spiritual church leadership or spiritual leadership in the church, there's really no lack of ideas or expectations, is there? I suppose that if I spoke to each one of you and I went up to you and said, what do you expect in your church leaders and what do you expect of those who lead us? You would probably have this big list, big list of of hopes and dreams and uh, wants and uh, desires. And so spiritual leadership sometimes falls into the category of people looking at the leadership and they say, well, we think that spiritual leadership is embodied in one single person. And he's supposed to be some kind of spiritual guru, as it were. And this one person has all of the answers to life, and he has all of the things. He speaks for God, and so on and so forth. Then there'll be other people that say, no, 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 no. Spiritual leadership is a, 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 involves many people. It involves a team of people, a group of people. And so this group of people are able, they're, they're miracle workers. They are supposed to meet all the physical and spiritual needs of, uh, of the people in the church. And as they go through all the trials and tribulations of life. And so when you see this coming together, it's almost like the perfect storm. Because people have such high expectations. And so they expect their leaders to meet all of those expectations and all of those ideals. And so this has consequences. What are the consequences? Well, for example, it's no secret that there's this big shortage of leaders in the church. It's no secret. It's no secret. There's a lot of people who, uh, there are a lot of openings, but there are a few that are applying and say, I'm willing to take on this leadership. I'm willing to take on this role. I'm willing to help meet this need in the body of Christ. You see? And so that's no secret, and not only in our church, but in all churches all around the world. There's also another consequence of these high expectations of spiritual leaders, and that is that there's an exodus of ministry leaders and ministers and elders and pastors from churches. There's, uh, there seems to be, uh, each week I get news that somebody, a classmate of mine or somebody that we know has decided that it's time for them to move on or move off. And things like that. Let me give you an example of this. When I left the United States five years ago, when I left the United States five years ago, there was a survey that was done. And what did the survey show? The survey showed that the average stay of a pastor in a Southern Baptist church was now down to three years. Was down to three years. And I haven't seen a more recent survey, so it might even have gotten shorter than that. So there's... Because of these high expectations that people have of spiritual leaders and spiritual leadership, then what happens is that there's this this, uh, uh, great hole, a great vacuum of spiritual leaders. And there's also a great exodus of leaders who are already there. And so this has serious consequences. Yes, we all have different expectations, ideas, and notions about who spiritual leaders should be and what they should be doing. That's just being human. That's just human beings being human, okay? That's the way it is. But at the end of the day, like Singaporeans are fond of saying, at the end of the day, who, who's, uh, the, expectation, the only expectations that really count, the only ideas about spiritual leadership that really count, the only notions about spiritual leadership that mount to anything are those of God, right? 
It's God's expectations that we should all live by and not our own. And so this is why it's so important that we study God's word and find out what are his expectations and ideas and notions about spiritual leaders and spiritual leadership. And so that brings us to our to continue our study today. We've we've been on a series of messages and the series of messages have been what does the Bible say about the church? What does the Bible say about the church? And so we're going to flash up a side for you. We're going to do a quick recap because we've been away from it for a little while. And so a quick recap shows that in the series of messages that have come forth, they're in your bulletin. You have them in front of you, so you don't have to try and copy them down, but you can read them later. And so there is, for example, the mission of the church, and then there's a key word, disciple making, and then so on and so forth. And this brings us to what we are today, which is the leadership of the church. Very important topic and one that I'm sure all of us are concerned about. And so spiritual leadership, as we get into it, where does our study begin? Well, it starts off with, by understanding a few key leadership principles, few key spiritual leadership principles. Now, we start there. Why? Because the leadership principles that are found in the world, secular leadership, are similar but not actually exact. In other words, the principles that are applied to spiritual leadership and the principles of secular leadership are similar, but not exactly the same. There are some differences. And so in order to understand what spiritual leadership is, we have to understand some basic foundational principles or essentials. The first one is this. Spiritual leadership involves believers who have the heart and mind of a servant. The heart and mind of a servant. Well, where do we get this? Jesus was not one to hide. He was not one to uh, mince his words. He was not one to pull back. And so he told it like it was. And so look what he says in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28. So Jesus uh, spends time with his disciples, and then this is what he had to say to them. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so when you think about this, you think, wow, Being a leader in the church. Ooh, think of the power, the authority. Think of the influence. Think of all this, that, and the other that you may have. Put that aside. You've got to have the heart and mind of a servant. Well, what are the depths to this? What is the extent to this idea of being a servant? How far would it have to go? Well, Jesus gave in this example of answers this with this example found in John chapter 13 starting with 12 through 17. John chapter 13, starting with verse 12. This is, of course, the example when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. Totally unexpected. Totally, you know, wasn't even on their radar screens. But this is what he did. And after he did it, he explained. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, 
for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. How extensive, to what end, to what extent would you be willing to go to have a servant spirit? You would do the most menial thing that was a servant. In fact, it is said by one commentator that the washing of the feet of guests in a home was not even reserved for a servant. It was reserved for a slave, the lowliest of the lowly. And Jesus says, when you come and and approach this whole idea of spiritual leadership, you must have the heart and you must have the mind of a servant. And that's exactly where we start. That is an essential principle of spiritual leadership. Another one is that spiritual leadership involves believers who are focused on meeting spiritual needs. Focused on meeting spiritual needs. Now, that doesn't mean we close our minds and we close our hearts to the needs of the the physical needs and the financial needs and the emotional needs of people around us. But it means that our our focus, our most of our attention is going to be on the spiritual needs of the soul of people. And where do we get this? If you turn to Ephesians chapter four, verse 11 through 13. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 13. He's talking about leaders, and he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints of the work for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of stature and fullness of Christ. And so he says, as spiritual leaders, as spiritual leaders, your concern is for the spiritual needs of each individual soul, of each individual person. It's also stated a different way in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. I mean, verse 28. And it's, it says there in verse 28, Him, meaning Christ, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone, what? Mature in Christ. So while our concern may be for physical and material needs of people, our focus is upon the spiritual needs of the souls of people. And so it's not about the bottom line. It's not about showing a profit. It's not showing that our income has exceeded our, out, our, our expenses. It's not about that. It's not about the statistics. It's about the one person. It's about the state of their soul, you see? And so that is another principle that works in spiritual leadership. Spiritual leadership also involves believers who are called by God. Believers who are called by God. The Apostle Paul embraced this and fully understood this. As great as he was, as a great apologetist as he was, as a great evangelist as he was, first and foremost, Paul saw himself as what? A servant of God. Romans chapter 1 verse 1. This is how Paul introduces his letter and himself. Paul 
a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. I love that when he says that. He says, a servant of God. You see, he didn't put apostle first. (laughs) He didn't say, me, apostle, you, listen. You know, he didn't say that. He came back and he said, me, a servant who happens to serve as an apostle. He has his priorities straight. Spiritual leadership involves those who are called by God, it says. Called to be an apostle. Spiritual leaders must put uh, their on, on, put out of their minds thoughts of considerations of a power and authority, but they are truly servants appointed by God and called by God to serve in that particular area. Another way that this shows itself up is that the spiritual leaders leadership involves believers who possess the spiritual gift of leadership. I didn't know there was a spiritual gift of leadership. Yes, there is. It's actually listed in the Bible. If you look at Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, verse 8. uh, The Apostle Paul went down and listed all these different gifts of grace that were given by God to the people of God so that they could minister and fulfill his will and plans and purposes on the earth. And he said this at the very end in Romans chapter 12, verse 8. He says, the one who exhorts in his exhortation... The one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So as he lists all these different spiritual gifts, he says, hey, 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 you who lead, do it zealously, do it with enthusiasm. The gift is also revealed in another way in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 28, and it says this, And God has appointed in the church, first, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. And the word administrating is an interesting word because it actually, in different forms, actually points to the idea of management of a household. So he says, those of you who have this gift of administering to manage a household, to lead a household, to be part of this. He says, that is your spiritual gift. A spiritual gift of leading is that ability where under the power of God, you are able to mobilize, you are able to motivate, you are able to make crystal clear the direction of the Lord, and people are willing to go in that direction. You're not a spiritual leader if you don't have any followers, okay? This is true of in any uh, any in any situation of life. One cannot say, "I'm a leader." I'm a leader. He looks behind him, and there's nobody there. <laughs> you know, it doesn't happen that way. You see, but here he says, "Look, the ones who uh, that I'm going to use are the ones that I'm going to gift, and I'm going to give them this gift of spiritual leadership." Now, spiritual leadership may happen in all different forms at all different levels. Some people say, oh, that means that they have to preach and they have to teach. That's one form of leadership, okay? But what about the mother who stays at home and teaches her children? What about the father who takes his son out and shows him how to fish and shows him and and directs his life and helps him to make crucial decisions at different points in his life? He's leading. He's leading. He's leading at different levels. And so this idea of spiritual leadership has great implications. But at least those four principles we need to keep in mind. 
The Bible describes a spiritual leader as a believer who has the heart of a servant, is focused on meeting spiritual needs, has the calling from God, and possesses the spiritual gift of leading. And so while it's the same, it's still different than secular leadership. Spiritual leadership is special. Now, that leads us to the next step, and that is leadership offices or levels. Leadership offices. I'm so glad that the Lord didn't leave the churches alone to just find their own way in the darkness. (laughs) If he did, we'd be all in trouble, right? But God has left us leaders to help us. But the leaders have a certain... um, Chain of command, if you so to speak, a certain order. And what's the first order? The first order is that Christ is the head of the church. How do we know that? Well, turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. Speaking of Christ, and he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he, meaning Christ, might be preeminent. So at the top of the pyramid, at the very top is who? Is Christ. He is the head of the church. But below him, he has given two different uh, uh, groups of people to help lead the church. Who are these two groups? The first one are elders. The next one are deacons. And so he has them working together in the local church to provide the leadership and meet the needs of the people. So let's start with the elders. Let's start with the elders. The term elder by itself is a very, very special title. Okay? It's it's one that speaks of age. It speaks of wisdom. It speaks of life experience. Okay? It speaks of all of those kinds of things. And elders in the Old Testament held a very esteemed place in the society. These were the guys who were the decision makers. These are the guys who would settle disputes. These are the guys who would decide policies and would decide guidelines and, and, and make decisions. They were also the people who advised the king. They were the people who advised people in places of authority. It was a very esteemed position to have, but a very uh, heady one. One that was very um, responsible, had carried a lot of responsibilities with it because they had to decide, help decide both spiritual and political matters in the Old Testament. Now we come to the New Testament, and the same word that is used, it translated in the, in the Greek Old Testament, is used in the new one, and that is. The idea of elders. The idea of elders. So it speaks about the governance of the church. The governance of the church. The elders, and and there's certain distinctives about this group of elders. I'd like to share three of them with you this morning. There's three distinctives about these elders and what they do. The first one is the elders are the main leadership body in the local church. If you look at Titus chapter 1, Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Paul is talking to Titus, and he says, look, I left you behind in Crete, but I had a reason to do that. I'm not there. I can't decide everything for that church. The church is going to face many decisions, and they're going to have to make them. They're going to have to have people, leaders, who are able to make them and to help care for the people. So this is what he says to Titus in chapter 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So that was Paul's pattern. 
Paul's pattern was he would come in, he would teach, he would evangelize, he would edify the believers, he would equip them. But then his stay wasn't always that long. And then he would be off to the next city. But carrying on the work behind him were those who had been prepared to become the leaders of the church, the elders of the church. And so he tells Titus, find these guys and put them in the place that they need to be to lead the church. Now, when you read your Bibles, when you read your Bibles, you might get a little confused like I was. Okay, And that is that sometimes the most common word is elders in our English Bibles. But you all of a sudden start seeing words like overseer. You start seeing words like bishop. And all of these kinds of words begin to show up. And you say, man, I'm getting a little confused. Who are we talking about? Well, if you do a word study, we don't have time to do that here. You find that these three words, the words elder, overseer, and bishop, seem to actually describe the same person. It's the same office. It may be called a different name, but it's referring to the same office, the same person. And why did God put the different names? I don't know why God does what he does. I can't think at his level, okay? But he did do it. But it's been suggested that the reason that different words come out is that he can give us different snapshots of this office, of this group of people, and what they do. For example, the word elder can refer to the dignity of the office. Okay? So when you think of elder, wow. This is a guy who really has his act together. This is a guy who, who really, you know, has life experience. And he's going to have some wisdom I need. Okay? And so you immediately think of that. You, you esteem this person. Then bishop and overseer. These could perhaps refer to the authority and duties of the office. So elders, overseers, and bishops are to exercise oversight of the church. Now, do we have an example of that? Do, do we have an example of in one place where these two things come together, this whole idea of, of overseeing the church, we do. First Peter chapter 5, starting with verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you, he's talking to elders now, as fellow elder and witnesses and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion but willingly as god would have you not for shameful gain but eagerly but eagerly not but domineering over those in in your charge but being an example to the flock so those two come together elder and oversight elders do what they oversee the church they make sure that everything's running smooth they they make sure that as best as possible needs are being met And so that was part of their role. They were the final decision-making and policy-making body of the church. So that was one role for the elders. Is there another one? Yes, there is. We can find this in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. And in this one, what we find is that God is calling them to be the preachers and teachers in the church. The preachers and teachers of the church. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. As for the rich in... 1 Timothy chapter 5. 
sorry. First Timothy chapter five, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in what? Preaching and teaching. So it's becoming very clear that if you look at all of these descriptions that I've given you so far, the elders decide things at the highest level. Next, they are involved heavily in the preaching and teaching that goes on in the church. The preaching and teaching of God's word, speaking for God. Now, the next thing that elders are, are charged to do is that they have a ministry of prayer, a ministry of prayer. If you look at the book of James, in the book of James, in the book of James, chapter five, verses 13, you'll see this very clearly, starting with verse 13, James, chapter five, verse 13 and 14. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So, if we put all the pieces together, what do we have? The elders have at least three clearly defined roles. One is oversight of the church or governance of the church. The next one is preaching and teaching. The last one is praying for the people in the church and their needs. Got it? So those are the roles that elders are responsible for. It's in a heavy role. It's a heavy responsibility to uh, carry out all of these. They are to carry, they are preach, teach, exhort, praying, and shepherding the flock. But you can tell right away, he says, wow, that if I were charged with doing it, if I was an elder, if you were an elder of the church, you would say, I wouldn't have enough hours in the day. I just wouldn't have enough hours in the day. And that's exactly what happened. And that's why God instituted through the apostles, the deacons. That's why he uh, instituted the deacons. Now, the deacons, the word, uh, it comes from the Greek word diakonos, which literally means through the dirt, <laughs> through the dirt. These are the real troopers. These are the guys who are involved in the nitty gritty of meeting needs of people. And sometimes they can get pretty, pretty difficult. It also came to refer to in later times to an attendant or one who serves table or one who ministers to another, focusing on the many, uh, focusing mainly on the needs that the uh, body of Christ had that the elders could not get to. And so this became a very important uh, part of the ministry, the whole ministry of a church. We probably have it best uh, illustrated for us in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. So if you turn with me to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, 1 to 4. You'll read this account. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, meaning the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint this duty. It says, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. You got the point? You see, I can't do everything. You know, I can't be out preaching and teaching the word. And then at the same time, going out and buying groceries for people that need it as much as people need it. 
He says, please, please, please appoint people of good, uh, uh, qualified people to go and do this. And this is where we get the modern day concept of the deacon. Now, you might say to yourself, wow, if I had a choice between the two of them, I probably wouldn't take either one. But if I had to take one of the two, I'd probably not choose the deacon because that sounds awfully hard. That sounds awful menial. That's below me. Not really. God holds it in high esteem. And that's who really counts, isn't it? It's what God thinks. And so in First Timothy chapter, First Timothy chapter 3, verse 13, this is what he had to say about de- those who serve as deacons. Tim, First Timothy chapter 3, verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. When God looks at them, he looks at them serving. He says, this is an honorable position. This is nothing to be looked down upon. It is not second class. It is very necessary, and it is something that people ought to uh, esteem and honor. So, where are we now? We have elders who preach, teach, pray. We have the deacons who are about to, uh, who do the, the task of meeting the many physical and material needs of the people. Now, I do have some good news for you. Now, we're going to get to it. I don't know how quickly, but we'll get to it as soon as we can. But GBC is now, look, the leader, the elders at GBC are looking into forming a group of people that would be called deacons, that would help come alongside and meet the growing needs of the people at GBC. And you say to yourself, well, about time. Thank you. Appreciate that confirmation. Okay. But it's something that we're going to take carefully and that we're going to have to think our way through it. And so I'm looking forward to the day when there will be what? Elders and deacons serving together at GBC, meeting the great needs of the people of GBC. Now, that gives you one more question. You're sitting out there and you're saying, ah, but what about guys like you? What about pastors? Where do the pastors fit into all this thing? Okay? Okay. Pastors, it actually comes from the Greek word poimen, which actually means shepherd. And what do shepherds do? They lead, they feed, they protect, they provide, they teach and train the sheep. We're sheep herders, okay? We take care of the sheep. We take care of God's people who are the sheep, all right? And so what happens is that when we look at such passages as Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 11 to 12, which we read earlier, we have the description of God has given pastors and teachers. And this is linked together, probably pastor, teacher. And their point is that they were to equip the saints for the service of the building up of the body of Christ until they become a mature person, a mature believer. So, lo and behold, their task is very similar to that of the elders. The pastor's role is very similar to the elders. And and so what happens here is that if we look at 1 Peter chapter 5, which we read earlier, it's actually tied to the office of elder. Where? When it says shepherd the flock. You see, the same word, poimen, a form of it is used there. Shepherd the flock. Pastor the flock. So there's a close, there's a closeness between the role of a pastor and the role of an elder. So then you say to yourself, now you got me really scratching my head, Pastor, because first you said there were three words that were used, elder, overseer, 
and bishop. And now you tell me there's a fourth one, pastor. And they could all be describing the same body of people. Yes. What is God doing here? Is he trying to confuse us? Is he playing mind games with us? No. God is probably trying to give us another snapshot of the role of an elder. So, pastors, should they be elders? Yes, if they qualify. Yes, if they qualify. Now, mark my words. I said, if they qualify. And so, what happens here at GBC? As pastor of the church, I'm one of the elders. Okay? And so, I work closely with them. We work hand in hand. I am one of the elders of the church. Okay? And so, I carry out these ministries of preaching, teaching, praying, and uh, overseeing the church. Now, when you look again and you, cl- and you close this off, you begin to realize that the, uh, these two groups of people really have heavy responsibilities. They really have heavy responsibilities. But with the elders and the deacons and all of them working together, that God has formed a kind of a check and balance system where needs are being met and each one is working together hand in hand. This is what we have. The Bible tells us there are two leadership offices in the church, elders and deacons. Well, then that brings us to the last point. The last point is qualifications, leadership qualifications. So there are leadership principles. Then there's leadership offices. Now there are leadership qualifications. Now, Time doesn't allow us to go through every qualification in deep detail. We'll save that for another time. But there are some general things that I can help you understand as you read the qualifications, okay? There are three things that seem to stand out. The first thing is that in the list of qualifications, there is a heavy emphasis on godly character for both elders and deacons. Godly character. Now, In our world, the way we think, we tend to look more upon competency, abilities, right? Character, uh, we'll fudge you a little bit on that, okay? Now, in America, it seems like, I keep picking, it sounds like I'm picking on America. I'm not picking on America. I'm just using, it's just a convenient illustration, okay? (laughs) Because it's so clear. In the United States, there is a movement that has been going on for several decades now in which there is a division between um, between who I am and what I can do, all right? And so what happens is people say, you know, as long as I can do the job, it doesn't matter who I am. <laughs> you got it? You know? So character doesn't seem to play as an important role. But if you read the qualifications, and I encourage you to do that, take your Bible, go home, open your Bible, and go to these passages, you'll see a heavy, 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 heavy uh, description or emphasis upon character. And so that just stands out. Also, number two, the qualifications for elders and deacons are very similar with an emphasis upon what? Godly character, godly lifestyle, and godly family life. And so when you try to, when you, when you get a chart, a piece of paper, and you start marking them all, you'll come down to those three categories. What God is looking for is people with godly character, godly lifestyle choices, and with godly families. That's who he's looking for, to be his uh, deacons and elders. Number three, as you read the list, as you read the list, okay, is that 
both the personal and public life of the elder needs to be considered. As you read the qualifications, God make, puts a premium upon who the person is in the church and who he is outside as well. You see, you can't escape those two. You can't escape those two. You know, why did God put that in there? Because what happens is that people have this marvelous ability to be one thing in church and another thing outside the church. They have this wonderful ability to be like chameleons, as it were. You see? And God puts checks on that. And he says, look, if we're going to consider you to be an elder or deacon, we're going to check you out both inside and outside the church. So be prepared. And that's what they did to me when the, when the pastoral search committee came to me and uh, were considering me to be a, uh, your pastor. That, that was one of the things they did. They checked everybody. They picked people I didn't even know. Who? Who did you ask? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, they made a complete thorough check, you know, short of a criminal background check with the government. I mean, you know, I got, I got looked over pretty good. But see, this is what the, uh, needs to happen. So go home, read the passages. Now, I don't have time to go through the passages, but all, the only thing I can do is point them out to you. First Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, and Titus chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. For the qualifications of an elder. Got it? First Timothy chapter 3, verses 18 to 13, for the qualifications of a deacon. All right? So take those home with you. Go home, open your Bibles, and take a look. Keep in mind those three uh, things that I pointed out to you earlier. Now, that gives us to the, the, uh, a very important point. A person says, okay, how do I decide... If a person should be an elder, how do I decide if a person should be a deacon? Okay? And people say, oh, oh, nobody's perfect. You know, he's good in this, but he's not so good in that. You know, we'll never find anybody, you know, who can meet all the qualifications. Well, the Bible does give us some guidelines, some helpful guidelines and wisdom. For example, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, it says for an elder... Not to be a new convert. Okay, that makes perfectly good sense, all right? I don't think you want a new convert up there overseeing the church, you know, teaching and preaching and things like that. So not a new convert. So that's one. Another guideline, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7. Must have a good reputation with those outside the church. Not only inside, but also outside the church. Okay, what do we find? Wow, he's really great inside the church. But outside the church, he's known as a real rabble-rouser, a real hot-tempered, short-tempered type of person. Okay, okay, okay. Maybe that's not the right choice. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 22. The general principle, do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily. Too hastily. All right? So don't be so quick. Do a quick to a point. Take your time. Get to know them. Get to know them. Okay, get to know what makes them tick. Get to know what doesn't make them tick. You know, those kind of things. Another guideline, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. This applies to deacons. These men must also first be tested. Now, I was kidding with the first congregation, and I said, maybe we should have a DSLE, a deacon, you know, test, you know. Maybe instead of A-levels, O-levels, we should have a D-level test. You know, for deacons, you know, that's not what it means. It means a person who's been tested over time has a strong track record. 
That's what it means, you see. And so, again, those would be a general guideline. And then Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Chapter, uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 9, talking about elders. In the New Living Translation, it says this. He must have a strong and steadfast belief in the trustworthy message he was taught. Then he will be able to encourage others with right teaching and show those who oppose it where they are wrong. So he's been taught well, and he not only taught well, but he's very convinced of it. And he's able to refute those who oppose it. So he must have a working knowledge of the word of God. Okay? And so all of these come together and come into play. Now, usually at this point in the, in the message, someone's sitting out there and saying, well, I'm already disqualified. Why? Because I don't have the spiritual gift of spiritual leadership. Then the other person says, and I don't know my Bible well enough to be a leader in the church. So therefore, I'm off the hook. You know, I don't have to do it. But you know, I found in most churches, there are people who are qualified. There are people. There are more people qualified than really care to admit it. And usually there's another reason why they don't want to become leaders in the church. And the number one reason, it's not because I don't have time and all this other stuff. The number one reason is because I'm afraid of criticism. I'm afraid of criticism. They understand that becoming a church leader is like opening, living in a fishbowl. And you and all your loved ones are going to be examined and scrutinized every time. And every move, everything you say or don't say, everything that you wear and don't wear, all of that is going to come into play. Now, is that the fault of the person who's going to serve? Or is that the fault of the people who he is serving? You see? There's a difference there. And so that comes into that expectation business. It comes into the, the critical spirit in the United States, you know what the greatest sport is? You know what the greatest sport is? Now, some of you are yelling out there and saying professional football, professional American football. You know, we, we don't play football right in the United States, but it's a very popular sport. Other people say, no, it's the American game. It's baseball. You know what the greatest game, uh, uh, sport in America is? It's called criticize the player. It's all these people who are overweight and out of condition who are yelling at a guy who's in peak condition and doing his very best to perform, and they're criticizing him to bits. You see, it's easier to criticize a player than be a player. It's easier to criticize a leader than to be a leader. Oh, you see? And so that is one of the things that happened. It's not if you are qualified. There's probably more of you who are qualified than you actually know. But you're afraid. And you ought not to be afraid. If God calls you to it, he will see you through it. I'm living proof of that. I'm over 30 years in this thing. I don't look like it, but I, but I am. I'm still standing. Okay? I'm still smiling. Okay? I still have a life. God is faithful. So what? Okay? May I suggest this? You hear all of this. You're saying to yourself, okay, well, yeah, maybe God has something he wants me to do after hearing all this. Maybe after understanding better the roles of the leaders in the church. First of all, work on the different areas, key areas of your life. Okay? Work on key areas of your life. Whether you're going to be a leader or you're not. You may not even know if you're going to be a leader. You may not be a leader. 
Okay? I don't know. That's between God and you. Okay? But how many? I'm going to ask you for a raise your hand. I usually don't ask you to raise your hands. But I'm going to ask you to raise your hands. Okay? How many of you would agree that it's a good idea to have godly character? Too many of you are hesitating. Come on. How many of you think it's a good idea to develop godly character? Come on, raise your hands. Okay, some of you have woke up. All right. How many of you would agree that it's good to develop a godly lifestyle? Raise your hand. Okay. A few more of you are still unconvinced. How many of you feel that it's a good idea to have godly family relationships? Okay. You see the point? So whether you're going to be a leader or not is immaterial. These things that God wants you to develop, these areas, are good for you anyway, right? So why not do them? Number two, open your eyes and hearts to the needs of the flock around you. Okay? You sit there and you say to yourself, well, everything's fine in our church, you know, everything's happy-go-lucky, you know, we got the pews filled, you know, the, we're, we're, you know, our income and our outcome are balanced and all this kind of stuff. Everything's fine, 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 fine. Open your eyes and see the needs of the people around you. And suddenly you begin to see a very different picture. You seem to, seem to see people who are very lonely. You start beginning to see people who are really struggling, trying to make ends meet. You start beginning to see people who are really struggling with sin. You start seeing people who are really, you know, don't understand the scriptures and they're, try, they're really struggling to try to understand what God wants them to do. They need some advice. Open your eyes. Get involved with people. And maybe even head up a ministry for people if God should lead you that way. Okay? The third thing. Pray, trust, help, encourage, and cooperate with your leaders. Okay? This is so important. This is so important. You know, I know some of you, some of us, you know, we, we get into this um, uh, this habit of ours. And every time the leaders do something or don't do something, we're Johnny on the spot. I mean, it's, it's like we know they did something wrong before they even did it. You know, we're, we're that good. Maybe we need to change this around. Maybe we need to be praying for our leaders so they won't make those decisions in the first place. You see? You see? And so let's support these guys. Let's support these guys. Now, so what is all this? The leadership of the church. The leadership of the church is so important. And there's the elders, there are the deacons, each with specific roles, okay? And God gave them so that we can thrive and grow as a church. And so let's get behind this and let's become this if that's what God wants. I've used this closing many times and I've heard it many times and I've always been convicted when I've heard it. But it's so good. And it says, if not this, then what? If not this, if not preparing ourselves to be leaders and to be leaders, then what else is there? What else does God want us to do? Please answer that for me. Okay? He wants you to go to lunch. You're going to go to lunch tomorrow too and the day after that. Lunch isn't that important. If not this, then what? If not now, then when? You know, oh, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. When will you be ready? Well, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago from now. Okay, write it down on a piece of paper. Give it to Kokpui. In 10 or 15 years, we'll call you. If not this, then what? If not now, then when? If not you, then who will be the spiritual leaders of GBC? Let's pray.
Father, we thank you and praise you for your word, for caring and loving us so much you gave us spiritual leaders. Bless GBC, Lord. Bless our leaders. Help them, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.